0: You know, you you might find this hard to believe, but uh, I used to dunk a basketball. Probably still could, I just hadn't tried lately. I was 14 or 15 the first time I dunked a basketball, and I was so excited I ran in the house and asked my parents to come outside and watch, and there they stood as their 14 or 15-year-old son, I think I was in the eighth grade, actually completed the feat. I dunked a basketball, but they didn't seem too excited. My mom and dad both rolled their eyes, made a snarky comment, and went back in the house. Apparently, they were not impressed with their son's natural, God-given basketball talent. Or, maybe they were unimpressed because it was a seven-foot goal, I don't know. (laughs) You see, the standard is a ten-foot goal. So it's unimpressive when you lower the standard in order to dunk a basketball. The idea is that you raise up to meet the standard rather than lowering the standard down to meet you. And that is exactly what the Israelites were doing and what we see written about in the book of Malachi. What we see with this minor prophet is that the people had lowered the standard and they thought that God would be impressed, but far from it, right? And among the many accusations that God makes towards his people, the main one was the fact that they had polluted the table, that they had despised the name of the Lord. They had failed to honor him properly. There was no reverence. There was no devotion. There was no passion. They were simply going through the motions. They had defiled the altar. Their worship was worthless. They had polluted the sacrifice before the Lord. In fact, their entire lives had become a polluted sacrifice. They were lazy, they weren't trying, they were apathetic, and worst of all, they were comfortable with it. And they had the gall to respond to God by saying, How have we despised your name? Look at verses 10 through 13 of Malachi chapter 1. It reads, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hands, says the Lord? Be, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name feared is feared among the nations. So the entire book of Malachi is really zeroing in on one theme. And that theme is this. It is an abject, apathetic attitude that shrugs one's shoulders and throws one's hands up and says, so what? I mean, what difference does it really make anyway? That was the attitude of the people. That was their problem. They were bored with worship. For them, worship was more about an obligation. So there was no passion, there was no devotion, no sacrifice. And yet the people still expected God to be impressed. They still expected God to bless them. God's people had lowered the standard. They were dunking on a seven-foot goal. Notice verses 11 and 12 again. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled and for its fruit, its food is to be despised. Notice the Lord's table is polluted. The people were bringing a sacrifice that was no sacrifice. They were offering lame blemished, sick animals. Some were not even bringing their own animal. They were bringing an animal that they took by force. They were offering the worst of their flock when there were better animals to be offered, and they didn't seem to even care about it. In fact, they felt that it was a burden to have to go through this whole production to begin with. And notice their response. What a weariness this is. You turn over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17, here's what we read. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, I mean, exact same kind of thing. The same thing that we read about the Israelites doing in the book of Malachi. The table had become polluted. It had become defiled. It had become polluted by their attitude and their actions. And Paul has a very similar reaction as Malachi. He sums up his criticism of the Corinthians by saying, When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? But that's not what they were doing, right? They were not coming together for the purpose of eating the Lord's Supper. At least that may have been their purpose, but that's not what they were doing. And Paul reminds them of two things. He reminds them of their personal salvation, and he reminds them of the purpose and the meaning and significance of why they come together and why they eat. The Corinthians are basically told to look inward and look outward. Look inward and examine yourself, and then look outward and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He goes on to say, "...whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself." Now understand, partaking in an unworthy manner has nothing to do with your feelings of unworthiness. Those aren't going to go away. You will always be unworthy. That is not the context of Paul's words here. That's not what he's talking about. He is not emphasizing one's own righteousness. What he's talking about is polluting the Lord's table by causing division, by not examining oneself, by being self-indulgent, by not focusing properly, by not proclaiming the Lord's death, by dishonoring the body and the blood of the Lord. You will always be unworthy. That's not the issue. The issue is being flippant about communion. That's the issue. The issue that Paul is addressing is the attitude with which you come to the table. When my kids were really little, Zoe and Zane had a battle virtually every night at supper. There was this one plate that both of them wanted, and they fought over that plate virtually every night we got together to eat supper. Now, we had other plates, and all the other plates we had served the same purpose as that plate, but for some reason, both of them felt like their eating experience would be greatly enhanced if they had that one plate, and so a battle ensued. And what happened oftentimes is we would take turns. One of them would have the plate, and the one that didn't would sit and sulk and pout and hardly eat their food. Sometimes we never got to the table. I would get so upset, I would say, you know what, just go to your room. You can starve to death for all I care. (laughs) And I can't help but think that that attitude is very similar to the attitude of the Corinthians here. The difference is that they weren't children. They knew better. They were adults. They should have been acting in a whole different manner. What makes this so bad is like the Israelites that Malachi confronted, the Corinthians were profaning the table with their poor attitude, and they needed an attitude adjustment. They needed to remember. You see, you go back, the, the Israelites had forgotten, hadn't they? They had forgotten the meaning behind their sacrifice. They had forgotten the significance of it. They had forgotten the magnitude of the blood and what that blood meant for them. And same with the Corinthians. They needed to remember. They had forgotten the meaning and the significance of the supper and coming to the table. They had lost sight of the power of Christ's blood and how that that blood affected them. And they had become detached from the occasion. So here's the question. Have we? Have we become detached from the occasion? Are we missing it? The Israelites were missing it. The Corinthians were missing it. Are, are we? You know, growing up Catholic, I was an altar boy. And if you don't know what an altar boy is, he basically tends to the priest during Mass, brings him the elements of communion, among other things. And... uh in the Catholic Church, we didn't have the matzo, or the cracker that you break off. We had uh, what was called the Eucharist. And actually, that's not a Catholic thing. That's a first century church thing. They called it the Eucharist. The, the supper was called the Eucharist, which just simply means to give thanks. Anyway, there was one evening on a, Sunday, uh, a Saturday evening where we were preparing for Mass, and I, I was taking out a bag of these wafers that we called the Eucharist. They hadn't been blessed yet or anything like that, so they were just a wafer. And so I take them out, and I begin divvying them up for Mass, and the priest looks at me and he says, uh, we can't use those, they're out of date. And I said, oh, okay. And then he, I, I said, well, what are we going to do with them? And he looks at me and he says, well, we probably just throw them out. And then he pauses for a second, and he says, why? Do you want them? And I said, sure. I, I like the taste of them. I said, I want them. And so I just sat there and started eating them. And I just stuff in my face. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were stuffing their face. I was detached from the whole reason why we had these wafers. I obviously didn't think about the symbolism or what they represented. I was just stuffing my face, and that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were stuffing their face with food, and they were completely detached from the occasion. They were eating and getting drunk with no regard for one another and certainly no regard for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus The Corinthians needed to go back. They needed to remember the purpose for the Lord's Supper and why it was instituted in the first place. The Israelites needed to go back. They needed to go back to Egypt. They needed to remember their exile. They needed to remember the the first Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. They needed to remember all of that. Just like the Corinthians needed to remember the purpose and the meaning and the significance. And we need to remember that as well. May we never forget. So let's spend a few moments doing that this morning. Look with me at Luke chapter 22. And in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, it says, "'When the hour had come, he reclined at the table "'and the apostles with him, and he said to them, "'I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover "'with you before I suffer. "'For I say to you, I shall never again eat it "'until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. "'And when he had taken a cup and given thanks,' He said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he he took the cup, and after he had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of one betraying me is with mine on the table, for indeed, The Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Now, if like Jesus you knew that you were about to die, you knew that in the coming hours your life was going to end, how would you spend that time? You know, if you were like Jesus and you had an opportunity to share one last meal around the table, who would you invite? My guess is it would be your family, your your closest people in your life. I picture myself sitting there with my kids, my wife. What would that conversation be like? I would assume It would be a conversation talking about how much you love them, how much you're going to miss them. You would talk to them maybe about some final instructions. You'd tell them to keep it going, keep living out the faith, so that someday we can have a family reunion in heaven. Is that not what Jesus is doing here? In the waning moments of his life, he gathers around the table with the people that he is closest to and the people that he loves, and he's telling them to keep it going, right? Of course, there's one there that's going to betray him, and even yet, to him, he is expressing love. Would that not have been an incredible experience? To be there at that time, to sit around the table with Jesus, to experience the institution of the supper, but to spend those final moments with him? Would that not be great? Is that not what we do every Sunday? Is that not what we do when we recline around the table? Of course, we don't recline. That would be awkward, wouldn't it? But we gather together to do the same thing. To share with Jesus and to share with our family, those we're supposed to be closest to. And we share in this communion together, don't we? We remember and we reflect, but we also share And I know that our go-to passage when it comes to the Lord's Supper is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 34. But in order to understand what is being said in 1 Corinthians 11, you have to go back. You have to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And notice what it says in verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul calls this supper a sharing. Your version may use communion. It may use participation. Fellowship is another word that could be used here. They're all interchangeable, and the Greek word is koinonia, which simply means that which is shared in common among a particular group. The Lord's Supper is a sharing. We become partners With Jesus and with one another when we come together around the table the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup is an exercise in unity and it's a beautiful illustration of the family bond that we share because this isn't just about juice and crackers folks this isn't some auxiliary exercise that we engage in because the bible tells us that we have to no this is a family get-together This is where we gather together as a family and we partake of the bread and fruit of the vine and we come together to do this and we announce to the world, to each other, hallelujah, Christ has risen, we are saved, we are heaven bound. It's a rejoicing, it's a celebration together. Paul stated it this way, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word proclaim there is, is to preach or to announce. So in a sense, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the gospel. We are preaching the gospel. And that's why I strongly disagree with Christians who, who think that we should only focus on the death of Jesus during the Lord's Supper. I know some who get rather legalistic about that. Based on 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26 Because it only mentions the death there. Some say we should never sing songs prior to the Lord's Supper that mention the resurrection. If you're going to do communion comments, you should never mention the resurrection. Folks, I completely disagree with that. For one, I believe that Paul is using something here that's called a a synecdoche. It's a figure of speech. Paul is talking about a part to represent the whole. Kind of like when I say I ask for my fiancé's hand in marriage. Well, it's not just her hand you want to marry, right? Or when we say boots on the ground for soldiers, it's not just their boots that are on the ground, it's the whole person, right? And Paul uses this figure of speech in other places. He does it in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2 when he wrote, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, is that all he determined to know about Jesus? Not the resurrection, just the crucifixion? No, obviously not. He's using synecdoche, which is a figure of speech. But also, do we understand what we are doing When we come together, do we understand what we are proclaiming? We are proclaiming not just the death of Jesus, but His burial, His resurrection. The Lord's Supper isn't a funeral, folks. And I don't know whoever decided it should be. This this doesn't have to be a somber occasion. I don't know whoever decided that this should be somber and funereal. Because it doesn't have to be. This is a celebration. Our Lord died. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father and we can celebrate. This doesn't have to be a dark, somber occasion. This is the ultimate Thanksgiving meal. This is a time of rejoicing. We partake on Sunday because that is the day he rose from the dead. To only focus on the death of Jesus during this time is to purposely avoid the good news that we are to proclaim. That Jesus came, that he died, that he was buried, and that he arose. He arose, hallelujah, Christ arose, right? You ever wondered what the apostles' first communion must have been like? So Jesus has ascended, and now they gather together. It's the day of Pentecost. Can you imagine that that communion? Can you imagine that Lord's Supper? Can you imagine being there in that moment and participating in the Lord's Supper with 3,000 souls who had just been added to the church? I mean, For them, as they gathered to remember, it wouldn't have been hard to remember and to reflect, the events leading up to that Lord's Supper and that occasion were still fresh on a lot of their minds. Imagine being there and imagine partaking in that supper in the first century. Let that image rattle around in your mind as you hear these words. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them with with all as anyone might have need day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. They were devoting themselves to, among other things, the Lord's Supper. The only reason you would devote yourself to that is because you saw it as important. You understood the meaning and significance, but also I think God's people, and certainly God, understood that we are good at forgetting and that we need to remember And so we set aside this occasion every week to remember. And when we come together to remember, we are doing that as a family. In the presence of our Lord. And you know what we're doing? We are sharing life. That's what we're doing. We are sharing life. We remember the life, the death, and the life again of our Savior. We celebrate the life that we have in Him. We proclaim the life that we have through the gospel. Our hearts cry out in unison. He's alive. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It is a recognition and a remembering of His death. That that not only did He die, but death died when He rose again. And so it's not just about proclaiming his death; it's about proclaiming all of it: his death, his burial, his resurrection, and therefore we can rejoice. Now, based on all of that, do you see why Paul was so upset with the Corinthians when they came together? Do you see what they were, what they were detached from? Do you see what they were doing? You see the sins that they were committing. They were not uni- uni- uh, united. They were not sharing. They weren't proclaiming the gospel. They weren't giving thanks. They weren't. They weren't celebrating a risen king. You know what they were doing? They were dunking on a seven-foot goal. And they thought that God should be impressed. And God and Paul were not impressed. In fact, they were livid. And the reason why is because they were completely detached from the real purpose. Instead of rising up to meet the standard, they had lowered the standard. You know, Judas was there. The night that Jesus instituted the supper. I want you to think about that for a minute as we close. Think about the fact that Judas was there. I'm sure you've thought about that before, but think about what happened just prior to the Lord's Supper, Jesus instituting the supper. Judas had just gone to work out a deal to betray Jesus. Jesus. Judas had just sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver. And now he comes back and he's gathered around with these other disciples and with Jesus. And Jesus does something very unexpected, doesn't he? What does he do? Well, he washes feet, for one. And he washes the feet of Judas. Knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he stoops down and he washes his feet. And Judas sits there we can imagine pretending like everything's okay and then they recline around the table and he institutes the lord's supper and there is judas and i I picture the disciples weeping sobbing as jesus is is carrying out this institution of the lord's supper and there's judas apparently pretending like everything is okay pretending like he never went and sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver knowing that he is going to betray Jesus, knowing that he's worked out a strategy for Jesus to be arrested and taken into into custody. And, And you look at this, and you think about this, and it's just disgusting, isn't it? It's sickening that Judas would sit there and let him wash his feet after he'd done what he had done, and then recline around the table and pretend like everything's okay. But folks, listen to me. Christians do this every week in the Lord's church. It happens every week that Christians live like a heathen from from Monday to Saturday and then they sneak in the back door of the church and they want to partake of the Lord's Supper and think that that makes everything okay. Not considering the significance and the meaning behind it, completely detached from the blood and, and, and and how the blood drenches this occasion. People who commune with Jesus on Sunday but live like Judas the rest of the week It's kind of what Paul is approaching here in 1 Corinthians. So the lesson is don't be a Judas, right? I don't think anyone sets out to intentionally be a Judas. I think it just kind of creeps in. We feel like that Sunday is our day to get right with God, but then we go back to our old ways Monday through Saturday. The world invades and infiltrates our lives, and instead of being a light in the darkness, we allow the darkness to overwhelm us. And then we come back on Sunday and we get right again. We think everything's okay. But we're dunking on a seven-foot goal, aren't we? And God is not impressed with that. You know, Jesus says something very interesting in John chapter 13. And after washing Judas's feet, after predicting Judas's betrayal, after dipping the bread and giving it to Judas, notice what Jesus says to him. He says, what you do, do quickly. In other words, whatever it is that you got cooked up in your mind, whatever it is you're going to do, just go ahead and do it. Don't sit here and pretend. Whatever it is that you're going to do, just go and do it. And I wonder, does, does Jesus speak to that with us? You know, look, if you want to go live like a heathen Monday through Saturday, just go do it. But don't come in here and play pretend. I mean, if you, if you want to go and live like a pagan the rest of the week, just go do it. But think about this. What if, when Jesus stooped down to wash his feet, what if Jesus looked at Judas and said, what you do, do quickly. Whatever it is that you're going to do, just go do it. And what if Judas responded with, I, I can't. I can't do it. You know, Lord, I was going to betray you. I had this plan concocted that I was going to go and I was going to you know, sell my soul for 30 pieces of silver and I was going to rat you out and I was going to have an opportunity to make a little money by coming up with this, this grand plan for you to be arrested but I can't do it now. You have shown me what true love is. You have shown me what a servant does. You have shown me what it means to be a disciple, and I can't go through with it. But sadly, Judas didn't take that route. Sadly, he went through with his plan, and we know how that ended. Don't be a Judas. Don't Spend your week betraying Jesus and then trying to make up for it on Sunday. Let what we do here, let the Lord's Supper fill you the rest of the week. Let it fill you from Sunday to Sunday. If you're struggling this morning and we can help you in some way, Maybe you've been being Judas during the week and want to get close to Jesus on Sunday. You know that's not working. Maybe you need the prayers and support of this church family. Perhaps, perhaps you're someone who has been contemplating what it means to be a disciple and you're ready to, to take the next step in that. We want to help you with that as well when we understand the meaning and significance behind the blood that was shed on our behalf, when we begin to understand that we're all responsible for the death of another human being, we begin to see more clearly the awesomeness of our salvation, the awesomeness of our God, and what it means to prepare right here, right now, to spend eternity with him. So if we can help you in that preparation, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?